It is an amazing revelation in a bizarre story that all began back in 1982. That's when 12-year-old paperboy Johnny Gosh disappeared. He was on his paper route in West Des Moines at the time. And now his mother, who has never given up hope, says he's alive and well and came to visit her nearly two years ago. News Channel 8's Todd Megal talked with Mrs. Gosh today. She told him why she waited two years to speak out about Johnny's visit. I did see Johnny in March of 1997. I, he came here very late at night. Noreen Gosh says her missing son Johnny knocked on her apartment door without any warning almost two years ago. Now she's ready to tell her story. He's angry, he's bitter, he's um, full grown, but still has had the, not the benefit of a college education, job skills, any of that to get along in life with. So it made me very sad. But why wait two years to reveal this stunning news? Well, Gosh was in Omaha on Friday testifying in the civil trial of a man named Paul Benassi. For years, he's told the Gosh family he knows what happened to Johnny Gosh. Now Benassi is suing an Omaha businessman who Benassi says sexually assaulted him as a child. Noreen Gosh was on the stand confirming Benassi's story when the bombshell dropped. The attorney asked me if I had had any personal contact or in fact had seen or talked to my son. And I was under oath so I had to answer. So what's happened to Johnny Gosh after all these years? His mother says he spent about an hour in her home describing his life. He's 28 years old now. What? He told me how he was kidnapped. Um, at first he was so drugged that he didn't know where he was at, but he could then uh, relate some of the names of the people that were around him that he was able to latch on to names. He told me how they traveled all over the country. They were used for pornography, prostitution, compromising businessmen and politicians sexually. These kids were used in a royal fashion like none of us would ever dream of. So what does law enforcement think? Well, Polk County Attorney John Sarcone says if Mrs. Gosh believes the story, then he's not about to say anything different. But West Des Moines Police Captain Bob Rushing tells the Associated Press that Mrs. Gosh has told similar stories before, only to recant them later. I know that there are people in this town that don't believe it. They don't want to believe it, so they say Noreen Gosh is nuts. I don't care. I simply don't care. My first responsibility is to my son because I'm the only one he has left. That is a news report from 1999 detailing the night when allegedly a 27-year-old Johnny Gosh appeared at his mother's front door in the middle of the night in March 1997. Let's recap the events of that night. In March 1997, Noreen Gosh was divorced from her husband, John, and she was living in a different part of Des Moines. One night after midnight, there was a knocking at her front door. She went to see who it was, and a man's voice said, Mom, it's me. It's Johnny. She opens the door, and she's skeptical. But she looks him over, and then she looks into his eyes. And Noreen has said this before regarding this moment. The eyes don't change. So it's him. After almost 15 years missing, Johnny has just appeared at his mother's door. He comes inside and he has another young man with him. This other person never speaks and Johnny does not introduce him. Noreen immediately wants to call someone, the police, but Johnny gets very upset saying she can't and he can't stay because it's way too dangerous. He doesn't want the people who had been trafficking him for all those years to know that he had been there or to catch up with him. 
So he also says that he can't stay. He has to get out of town. And during this short visit, only about an hour or so, he tells her everything that he had been through, that he was sold into a child prostitution ring, was forced to be in porn, and that these were rich, powerful people who were able to traffic these kids all across the country. After he finishes telling Noreen everything that happened, he says he has to go. He also asks her not to tell anyone that he was there. So Johnny and this other man he was with disappear back into the night, never to be heard from again. Noreen kept this midnight meeting a secret for two years and only shared it when she was under oath, testifying in Paul Benassi's civil suit against Lawrence King in 1999. Now, as I've stated before, I first started following Johnny's case a little more than a year ago, around January of 2017. And I remember when I first read this part of the story, my initial feeling, albeit that this meeting confirms the horrors that not only Johnny, but all these other countless kids have had to go through, everything we've heard in Conspiracy of Silence and in America's MIA children, my initial feeling was one of relief. I almost want to say some sense of closure in a way. At least Noreen got to see Johnny one more time. But there are so many questions that surround this encounter. Like a lot of people, I have my moments of doubt too. Could this have been someone pretending to be Johnny? Could she have dreamed it? Those were the two big counterpoints going on in my mind, and I wish I knew every last detail of that night. I wish I could see it in front of me, analyze it. So in my first segment today, you're going to hear from each person I've talked to so far on this podcast. Director of Who Took Johnny, David Bielinson, Della Williams and Tracy Pampina of the Missing Persons Support Center, and Mary Bell of the Doe Network. And you'll hear each of our thoughts on the events of that night. This is episode seven of Faded Out. I'm Sarah Dimio. start off with a commentary on that first clip. You heard the reporter say that the West Des Moines police captain is quoted as saying that Noreen Gosh has made similar claims of seeing Johnny in the past, only to recant them. Well, right off the bat, that's inaccurate. I mean, I know what the police captain is trying to insinuate, but there's a big difference between finding a note and a signature written on a dollar bill, or getting a letter in the mail, or getting a phone call late at night from someone claiming to be your son, and actually physically seeing him right in front of you and hearing him speak to you. A real, tangible meeting. That's the difference. It's also very important to note that Noreen's account of what happened that night has never changed over the years. The details that she described initially in 1999 are exactly the same details that you hear her describe in Who Took Johnny in 2014. Every TV appearance, every news article from 1999, almost 20 years ago, up until now, it's a story that never wavers. We've seen the importance of that. So let's say that this really is Johnny that appeared at Noreen's door that night in March of 1997. Some of the questions that start to pop up in my mind are, how did he stay alive for all that time? Where has he been sleeping? How does he eat? If he escaped or was let go by these people, then how is he able to get around? What does he do for money? Pretty much all the basic necessities of life. 
So it almost causes an existential crisis for me. Is it realistic to believe that an adult Johnny Gosh was able to make it out alive from an adolescence where he was sold and trafficked to pedophiles all around the country, forced to perform in porn and snuff films? Or am I just believing that it's realistic because I want it to be true so badly? because I want to believe that he escaped and made it out alive. When I spoke with Della Williams and Tracy Pampina of the Missing Person Support Center, I talked to them about this night that Johnny appeared, and I asked them point blank, is that even in the realm of reality? I don't think so. I don't think so. I, th I don't even think that he would have made it to his 20s. It was, mm -hmm. you know, if someone in fact did show up, it was probably a scam artist, I would think. Okay. Or maybe, like you said, she did dream it. You know, she's been, you know, his his mother has been looking for him for so long that I think that she would just grasp at anything to, like, you know, be the truth. Yeah, I kind of agree with Tracy. I mean, not that you want to say that, you know, you, I don't know, it kind of sounds like a dream or something she wants or, or maybe a scam she that someone played her. It. But I would not think that he wouldn't make it that long in sex trafficking because most most children just they don't make it that long right and if he uh, was being videoed at some point somebody would have gone hey that's that kid off the, right. the milk carton and even though i'm not supposed to be watching kitty porn i can come up with some sort of crazy idea and go to the police and make some sort of reward if there's some sort of reward they go oh you know I mean, as far as you guys know, is there anything like that that happened where anybody came forward and said, no, I've never heard of anything like that. I mean, I, I mean, I knew about it in in Johnny's case, but I, I honestly, I don't, I, I find that hard to believe because, um, you know, if he was in his twenties, I don't, like Stella said, I don't think he would have made it that long. I think he probably would have been sold and resold until he, maybe, maybe his, you know, early teens or mid-teens and then probably something happened to him if he if he even made it the first 24 hours everything that tracy and della said is statistically true they brought up a very important point too think about what a highly publicized case this is one of the first kids on the milk carton parents are often on the news it stands to reason that a few things would happen as a result of that Either one, like Della said, somebody watching one of the child porn films that Johnny was forced to be in could potentially recognize him from the milk carton. And if there's a reward involved, which there was, they might find a way to call it into police in the hopes of getting that reward. Or... That hints at another possibility. On the flip side of that, suppose one of the people selling him or forcing him to be in these films sees his picture on TV or on the milk carton. They could decide to just keep him hidden away, or they could decide to just cut their losses, kill him, and dispose of the body somewhere. When you put your own personal thoughts and what you want to believe on the back burner for a second, these are the things that you have to consider when you step back and you look at this case objectively. But that also leads me to David Bielinson. He knows Noreen. He's worked with her, and he knows that she's not one to be easily duped. And he also knows every facet of the Johnny Gosh case. He's researched the case since 2002. He made a special for MSNBC, a feature-length documentary, and he has met and interviewed every person directly related to the case. So when I told him that Della and Tracy both agreed that it's unlikely Johnny showed up that night, this is the response that I got. So, but we're not talking about every common case here. We're already taking the leap of faith that it, it, obviously if you believe he was abducted and killed that night, then nothing matters from that point forward. 
if you believe that there was someone organized involved and that he was alive for all these years, either used as, you know, sort of used and trafficked, then the idea of coming home to visit, I mean, we've seen that happen before. J.C. Dugard, I mean, there's tons of instances of right. kids who go kidnapped at a young age, living with their abductors, in some cases, have opportunities to flee and never fled. If you're young and naive and your abductor has had you, you know, um, captive for years and tells you they'll kill you and kill your parents if you go do something, um, I, you know, the psychologist would tell you that creates a sense of fear and a sense of, you know, what they call the Stockholm Syndrome, the idea that you, you know, are sort of closer to your abductors and captors. Look at all these kids chained up in these homes. Right. Uh, and, these, you know, they're, they, they outnumbered the parents. Could they have gotten away and done something and called someone and told someone at school? Of course. Mm-hmm. Um, so you think about, you know, this, this uh, Sean Hornbeck is a famous case um, of a kid who was abducted and he lived with a guy for three years and started going to a new high school and had a girlfriend while, while living with the abductor um, and was helped. And he was abducted to the help of another kid. So there's been also stories we've heard of that where, you know, kids who have been abducted themselves have helped lure other kids in. And that's been part of the lure. Right. Um, the three girls in Ohio living in the back guy. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, the, 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 the cases go on and on in terms of this happening. So you already have to have a leap of faith that that would have happened. Whether he came and visited that night and left, you know, that's for Noreen to sort of, it's, it's her word against anybody else's. You know, what would be the benefit of her telling that story? Well, first of all, it makes sense. If you believe what happened to him, then it may make sense that he came and then left. Because if you believe that he's, is being used and abused by some organization, and you would think that he's, you know, been a criminal himself. He's mm-hmm. had his life threatened. He's had, you know, he's been under incredible stress for many, 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 many years. Right. So that's not, it's not unreasonable based on the circumstances. Now, some people would say, well, if it was my son, I would have jumped on him and not let him go out of the apartment. You know, what we should have right. done. <laughs> I think that, that those are all very easy things to say after the fact. Um, it doesn't, Again, the fact that it didn't happen doesn't make it not true. What, what does Noreen's benefit out of it get out of it? People already think she's crazy. People already thought she was nuts about what she was saying at the time. What would be the benefit to her coming and telling people that it happened? And also, the circumstances by which she told people it happened, she didn't tell anybody at the time that it happened. Right. She only revealed it during a court de- deposition. True. So, if someone were going to make up this lie, wouldn't they go to the press the next day and say, look what happened to my son last night? They wouldn't say, oh, it happened two years ago. They wouldn't have said it in a way that they weren't prepared to reveal that. So, again, that would have been a quick lie she would have had to come up with on the stand and this whole elaborate ruse that she would have had to gone into um, explain. Again, her story's never wavered in terms of what happened that night. Did someone have visited her? But maybe the person wasn't Johnny, too? Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's, that's kind that, of... That's scenarios. I, I believe her, though, so... Yeah, and I and I and I'm just kind of I'm trying to weigh every possibility too. Like, yeah, it could have been him, but maybe it was a scammer too, or somebody trying to, you know, trying to play some horrible, cruel joke or something. Or um, there's there's a lot of instances in the story where people had sightings, things were written on walls, dollar bill with his signature on it. A lot of stuff came into the mix, which to me also made the story richer because what other missing kids case in U.S. history has had like people being willing to put up this hoax or put up this farce? You'd have to have all these willing participants or you'd have to have a mixture of real evidence and false evidence. I mean, there were cases and stories of people from the Hells Angels telling uh, investigators that they were transporting 
trucks of kids across the country, and, and, and they knew one of the kids looked like Johnny. Well, the truth is, the Hells Angels did get in trouble for stuff like that. Mm-hmm. There, there were documented cases of kids being transported across the country by truck. Was one of them Johnny Gosh? That's a separate, you know, you know what I mean? So it, the, the nature of the story takes on legendary status because uh, what it talks about and what it exposes is the underbelly. David also makes very solid points, and he gives a great example. J.C. Dugard, who was kidnapped at the age of 11 and held for 18 years until she was found and brought home alive at the age of 29. That was a major news headline when it happened in 2009. I remember it well. And then there's Michelle Knight, Amanda Berry, and Gina DeJesus, all who were taken by Ariel Castro between 2002 and 2004, and all managed to escape alive on May 6, 2013. So it has happened. Though there are the statistics, the caveat to keep in mind here is that statistics mean nothing to the individual. Remember when I talked to Mary Bell of the Doe Network and she looked up the potential match for Johnny that I submitted, ID number 174UMCO? Well, there was a reason I thought this person could be Johnny, and a reason the person who submitted it before me thought so as well. I think the person that originally submitted this was sort of referencing um, Noreen Gosh's belief that she had seen him in 1997. Yeah, like I think like that is kind of why I thought it was possible too, because I had just recently heard about that supposed instance. Plus, the majority of us believe that uh, Mrs. Gosh is the victim of a very cruel hoax. I've been trying to make heads or tails of that instance for a while now. Um, Uh, It's either a delusion or somebody who is just very cruelly hoaxing her. So we've got Mary Bell, Della Williams, and Tracy Pampina on one side saying that they do not believe an adult Johnny ever showed up at Noreen's door. All three tend to be in agreement that it was either a dream or it was a couple guys playing a cruel hoax. On the other side of those who believe it was Johnny, we've got director David Bielenson. He reminded us of the living examples we've seen of kids being abducted at a very young age and reappearing alive 10 all the way up to nearly 20 years later. Each side to this debate has an advantage that the other doesn't. The Doe Network and the Missing Persons Support Center each work in the business of finding missing people. That is their field. That's what they do. They know what the trends are when a child goes missing and when human trafficking is taking place. That's their advantage. David Bielenson's advantage is that he knows the Johnny Gosh case, and he knows Noreen because he's worked with her personally, and he's the one who said it. It's Noreen's word against anyone else's. So it leaves me with the same questions that I had when I started this segment, and when I first heard this part of Johnny's story. I want to believe it, and I don't think it's impossible. But why would Johnny's captors let him live for so long when his case is so widely known and his face recognizable? It's like I said, I wish I could see this night play out in front of me so I could analyze every step, every movement, every word spoken. So, in my next segment, I'm going to play for you a recording of Noreen where she goes more in depth about the night Johnny appeared at her door. It may shed some light on how he ended up at her door, how Noreen knew it was him, and how he managed to stay alive for all that time. That's up next.
Ted Gunderson was an FBI special agent in charge. He first joined the FBI in December 1951 under J. Edgar Hoover. In 1973, he became the head of the Memphis FBI office, and then in 1975, he became the head of the Dallas office. Then in 1977, he was appointed the head of the Los Angeles FBI office. So in 1979, he was interviewed for the position of FBI director, but that job eventually went to William H. Webster. After he retired from the FBI, he became a private investigator, and in the early 2000s, I don't know the exact date, he conducted an interview with Noreen Gosh. The video can be found on YouTube. It's about two hours total in length. What is immediately noticeable about this video is that it doesn't seem that the intention was for it to be shown to the public. It's very rough, shot on just a cheap home movie camera. It's unedited, no cuts, just rolls for two hours, whether Noreen is answering a question or if they're between questions. But Noreen's answers are descriptive, especially when detailing the night in 1997 when Johnny appeared at her door. So here's a clip of Noreen in that interview with Ted Gunderson talking about that night. Also, listen closely for a familiar name. In December of 1996, I was invited to Los Angeles to be on the Lisa Gibbons talk show. I had been on there several times before, and this particular time, she had me on with a group of other mothers who had lost their children, and it was right before Christmas. And she asked if we wanted to give a Christmas message to each of our children if they were still alive. I looked at the camera, and I said, I spoke directly to Johnny, and I said, Johnny, if you're still out there, and if you're alive and you're getting this message, I'll help you in any way I possibly can. I still live in West Des Moines. I've divorced your father, but I'm, and my name and address are listed in the phone book so that you can find me. Contact me and I'll help you. I then flew home, and it was approximately three and a half months later, in March of the year 1997, when someone started knocking at my door in the middle of the night, and it was a consistent knock. They kept on knocking and pounding at the door. I went to the door, and I lived alone, and I would not have normally opened the door at that time of night, but I looked out the little security hole in the door, and I could see two young men in the hallway. The hall lights were on, and I could see the facial features of one of the boys, and he looked like Johnny. And I said, who's there? And he said, it's me, Mom, it's Johnny. So I let them in. The one young man that was with Johnny did not talk. He kept very quiet, and he would not give me his name. It was a very emotional reunion, because I had not seen Johnny for many years. But when he came in, I thought he was home to stay. I, I thought this was his return. And I said, you're going to have to have a safe place to stay. I said, let me call somebody that can come here tonight and give us some legal advice and some help. And he said to me, I can't stay. You don't understand. It's not safe. And I said, you wouldn't be safe if I stayed. They'll kill me. And then my son went on to, to talk about the high-level pornography and prostitution drug-running group that he had been taken into. And he talked about Colonel Michael Aquino. He talked about some of the local people in Des Moines, Iowa, 
that he knew were involved. People across the country that were in high places politically, he mentioned. Some senators all the way to the White House. I sat there and I was shocked because I had not heard any of this. And he told me that he wanted me to get his story out. He wanted me to do something that would start to make some arrests happen so that he and the other kids that were involved could someday be free, maybe to go reunite with their families. But at this point, they had no choice but to hide out. He also explained to me that he and a couple of the other boys had stolen a car earlier, several years earlier. And that's how they got away from the actual kidnappers, the ones that actually controlled their movements on a daily basis keeping them in safe houses across the country. And that when they stole this car, they went to one of the boys' homes, and his father was a CPA in another city, a very well-respected man. They stayed there several days. And from that house, Johnny and one of the other young boys went to an Indian reservation to live. And Johnny ended up living on many Indian reservations in seclusion disguising himself, making himself look like a Native American during that period of his life. And he did that to avoid being found. He went to an Indian reservation to avoid being apprehended, if you will, by authorities because it's a sovereign state. They knew they'd be safe on an Indian reservation. He remained there until publicity again started to reach a high level nationally concerning his case. Then he left the last Indian reservation and has gone on to remain in hiding in other places of the country. During the time that he did remain on the Indian reservation, he fell into probably another form of control, another form of crime level, and many of the kids that are taken into this type of crime will not ever ask for help. They won't go to their parents. They won't go to police for help because they've been forced to commit felonies. While my son was here with me during our visit, which lasted about two and a half hours, these are many of the things that he related to me, the hows, the whys, many of the details. He did not, however, tell me the intimate details of the type of abuse that he received. I knew that it was sexual, and I think that he did not want the embarrassment for himself and the hurt for me to have to hear it. At one point, he said that he was going to have to leave because he couldn't stay any longer. And as much as I hated to see him go, I knew that he had to go for his own safety. When he and the other, other young man left my home that night, I ran outside after them, and they disappeared into the night on foot. I did not see any cars they got into. I did not hear any engines start up. So I know that they had to have had a car parked some distance away and then walked to my place so that they could slip away easily without being noticed. That was the last time that I saw my son. That meeting was very meaningful to me because I knew that he had seen the broadcast that I was on. 
I knew that all the TV shows that I was doing was for a reason, a good reason. The off chance that my son might see the message that I was still looking, I still cared, and I still love him. I think it's safe to say that is the most detailed description of the night in question that you can find. And did you catch the moment where Lieutenant Colonel Michael Aquino was mentioned again? The man who allegedly was the buyer for Johnny and had come and taken him to Colorado after Johnny had been held at a house in Sioux City for the first two weeks. I think the most fascinating thing about this, fascinating and disturbing, is that this entire timeline makes sense. There are no holes in the story. Let's run through the timeline again, and this time with the information that you just heard from Noreen. After Johnny is kidnapped off the street on the morning of September 5th, 1982, the light blue Ford Fairmont speeds through a stop sign at 42nd and Marcourt and takes off down 42nd Street. His unconscious body is transported into a waiting van, which then takes him to Sioux City, Iowa. On September 19th, Lieutenant Colonel Michael Aquino purchases Johnny for $35,000, and he takes him over state lines into Colorado to the house with the cavity dug underneath for the purpose of hiding the boys if the cops ever came around. From there, Johnny, along with these other boys, is forced to perform sex acts on grown men, men who were very rich and had the means to purchase these boys and to keep it all hidden and maintain a public image of being a successful, upstanding citizen. Johnny is also forced to perform in porn films. He's flown to locations across the country for these purposes, as well as to traffic drugs. He's forced to lure other young boys into these rings, just as it happened to him. And then, as Noreen explains, a few years into this life, Johnny and some other boys steal a car. After hiding out at one of the other boys' parents' house for a few days, they move on to a reservation. I mean, that would be the smartest place to go to hide out, being a sovereign ground. So I have to imagine that's where Johnny and the other man went back to after they left Noreen's place that night. And I do have to give a correction to something I said in my last episode. I had said in episode 6 that Noreen was divorced from John Sr. and had remarried. But as you heard her say, she was divorced, but not yet remarried, and she lived alone at the time. And that does make more sense too, because it stands to reason that if Johnny wanted to speak to his mother in secret, he would make sure to do it with nobody else around. So digest all of that for a second. As unbelievable as the whole thing may sound, you have to ask yourself, is it so unbelievable? The truth is, it's really not. In 2018, we know that human trafficking exists. There's a much greater consciousness about it. Think about any time we have a big event, like the Super Bowl, for example, or if you're in a largely crowded area, like an airport. What's something you're always warned about, whether it's on the news or printed on a sign somewhere? Watch out for the signs of human trafficking. If someone looks like they're being controlled by someone else, such as not having access to their own money, needing permission to speak, these are the things we know to be on the lookout for. But as late as the 1980s and into the 90s, this wasn't something that people were conscious about. I'm curious about these reservations that Johnny and the other boys supposedly hid out on after they escaped. If they were able to hide out there for several years, would they then be able to live out a full life into adulthood there? You know, it seems impossible after what happened to Johnny at only 12 years old that he'd 
live to even be an adult at all. And even if he had, that it would be a life where he could find any kind of peace. But I will tell you, everything that I've read and heard about Johnny, this kid was resourceful. He was smart. He had a survivor instinct. And I think he got that fire from his mother, Noreen. She was no shrinking violet, as they say, and neither was her son. So is it possible? Maybe. Again, I cannot confirm something as fact just because I believe it could be true, or because I really want it to be true. So, in my next episode, we're going to explore this further, particularly the living on the reservation aspect of the story, but we're also going to talk more about Ted Gunderson, because his involvement with everything I've talked about so far on this podcast throws a slight wrench into the issue of credibility. It's another fork in the road where we have to stop and pick through the fact and the fiction. I will be back for episode 8 in two weeks. I do apologize for not being able to bring it to you next week, but in the meantime, please get in contact with me. You can email me at fadedoutpodcast at gmail.com. You can also tweet me at Sarah E. Dimeo. That's S-A-R-A-H-E-D-I-M-E-O. Faded Out is also on Facebook, so please feel free to like our page. And if you'd like to discuss the details of this case more in depth, we do have a closed group that you can request to join called Followers of Faded out. As always, Faded Out is recorded at the Connecticut School of Broadcasting in Farmington, Connecticut. Thank you for joining me for episode seven. I'm Sarah Dimio. See you in two weeks. Bye.